Adventures in Contracting. I am Leona Charles, the CEO and President of STC Business Consulting, where we do all things government contracts. You can find this episode on SoundCloud, Buzzsprout, or on our website, stcconsulting.org, or on any of our social media pages. So now that that's out of the way, let's get to the episode. So unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard about Brett Favre and the Mississippi welfare scandal. And this episode, we're going to be talking about that. This this conversation is going to be centered around how the states fail. And I think in government contracts and grants, there is a tendency to kind of hyper-focus on the vendors or the recipients of funds. And there's little to no thought about the state or the government's responsibility to safeguard those funds and to ensure that they're being used appropriately and the people charged with oversight are behaving appropriately. So this case in particular is a textbook case of bad government acting, and it's fairly open and shut. The former director, John Davis, steered millions of dollars in TANF funding through various nonprofits and consultants, and he completely shirked his, his responsibility as the director of, of the agency. So I, before we get started, I just want to give a, a huge, huge shout out to the original, the original reporter on this. She did such a tremendous amount of work. Um, she tracked all of the money back to where it started, back to Wolf, back to these funds. So I, I just want to give kudos to her. She did such a great job that it just literally, you know, sparked my interest in this. So, um, so to get started, there's, there's something that I want to talk about. I'm sorry, her name is Anna Wolf. Anna Wolf. She's from, uh, she's a Mississippi Today reporter. Um, one of the things that this is going to hinge on are the, the pillars of how the TANF program was started. So, it's the, the TANF program, which is Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. It It's designed to provide assistance to needy families so that the children can be cared for in their homes or in the homes of relatives. It's designed to end the dependence of needy families or, or needy parents, excuse me, on government benefits by promoting job preparation, work, and marriage, and to prevent and reduce the incidence of out-of-wedlock pregnancies and establish annual numerical goals for preventing and reducing the incidence of pregnancies and to encourage the formation and maintenance of two-parent families. So it's no it's no shocker that as, as we've progressed as a country, fewer and fewer people qualify for this program based just on these pillars, right? It's, um, it's not keeping up with kind of our societal norms. It's not keeping up with how we've evolved as a society. There is now more single parents, uh, now more out of wedlock pregnancies. And the ideal that a, a government agency is going to prepare you for marriage, you know, I think touches a few people the wrong way. But the Mississippi law also says that it's limited to a couple of purposes, right? So if you're going, if you're going to receive the money and in turn send it out to someone else, it's limited to provide assistance to needy families so that their kids can be uh, cared for in their homes or in homes of relatives. 
and will be met, met will be monitored on a random basis by the Department of Human Services or the Department of Health. Uh, it, it can the funds can be used to end dependence of needy families by promoting job prep, work and marriage, job placement, job training, and job and job retention. It can be used to prevent and reduce the incidence of out of wedlock pregnancies, to encourage the formation and maintenance of two parent families. And the most important one, which is what I think sustains gambling, is to prevent program fraud and abuse. So I really um, am pro-prosecute Brett Favre because I think what he's done is atrocious. But what I'm really impressed with is the way that the state of Mississippi is is setting up this lawsuit because their number one person that they're going after is John Davis. And I think that is so incredibly important because he was at the top and he made the decision to circumvent the competitive structure, to circumvent all of the controls and processes in place, and to really just say, you know, to heck with the rules and, and, and guidelines, we're just going to give these to people that we know and, and my family members. The way that the state has set up this case, and it's really interesting, is they're charging each of the 38 defendants with having known or should have known that the funds they were receiving were not private funds, that they were government funds, specifically SCANF funds, and that those funds carried restrictions on the use of funds, and that they should have known, or they did know, that any subgrants should have specific skills, SCANF-specific skills. Remember, so that's, um, that's in job preparation, work and marriage, job placement, job training, and reducing out-of-wedlock birth, right? So having one of those specific skills to be engaged as a consultant or a contractor. So what I did was go out and pick the most um, egregious uses of, of the funds. And it's not exhaustive, but I think it's enough to kind of make a, to paint a picture of, of, of what was going on in, in this brief kind of like 20 minutes of this podcast. So John Davis's nephew was paid $400,000 to create coding academies for two nonprofits. Those coding academies never came to existence and his nephew did not have any experience as a computer programmer. So again, go back to the state's assertion, right? How they're setting up this, this lawsuit that they're, the funds have to be used for TANF-specific goals, right? And job creation, job retention, job training is an allowable goal. But to do that, the person has to have specific TANF skills. And he had no experience as a computer programmer. So they're setting it up right there. Um, his brother-in-law received $600,000 for a non-existent job and a lease on a non-existent, non-existent building. Marcus Dupree paid three, he was paid $371,000 to buy a 4,000 square foot house with a swimming pool, pavilion, and adjoining acreage courses. The repurpose was allegedly for equestrian activities for underprivileged children. Jason Crabb, who was a Christian singer, was paid $43,000 for Bible-inspired books. Brett Favre, we know, had a million dollars to host fitness camps and give motivational speeches and received a further five for his daughter's college 
volatility. Ted DiBiase, under uh, a couple of nonprofits, the Heart of David, Priceless Ventures, Familiar Orientum, Defendant Restore, received $2.2 million for leadership, $824,000 for training in substance abuse treatment, $1.7 million for leadership, mentorship, advertising, public relations, marketing, and branding and campaign services. I'm not exactly sure what campaign services has to do with cannabis, but he was given the green light on it. And $250,000 on motivational messages. So what is really funny here is that Mississippi has an entire sub-branch manual. Now this manual breaks down basically everything that, that needed to be done. And, and what is really smart here is that the state is pointing out some very tangible things that John Davis did not do in his tenure as a director. One of them being the documentation that's required. So in the man, in the subgrant manual, chapter four says that every subgrantee is required to isolate and trace every subgrant dollar and have on file invoices, payroll, bank statements and reconciliation, client eligibility documentation, activity sheets, and hours worked. And then chapter three talks about what the subgrantee's responsibilities are. And one of those key responsibilities is that the subgrantee is to ensure that the received funds promote the specific purposes of the grant. And then we go back to the state and those purposes are providing assistance to needy families to be cared in their homes or the homes of relatives, to end the dependence by job prep, work and marriage, job placement, job training, job retention, to reduce and prevent out-of-wedlock pregnancies, and to encourage the formation of two-parent families, right? So it's really, really smart that they're they're using this. Another one, um, another one? No, those are the only ones I want to talk about. Sorry. Um, the way that this has been set up, there is no real way that they could back out and say I should have known. Another interesting thing, and I don't know if the state is going to bring it up, but I'm sure that they will in when they're when they're setting up their case to show how John Davis was negligent as a director. Now, in in contracts and in grants alike, generally the executive director of an agency will be that contracting or grant administrator. Um, because they are the highest ranking person and you typically the way the laws are written and it may differ in Mississippi, but I know here in the DMV, that is generally how it is. The executive director is usually the person that is termed the contracting officer or the grant administrator. Now, as a grant administrator, ultimately they are responsible for ensuring the compliance, ensuring the use of funds is appropriate and ensuring oversight. Now, what they can do is they can delegate that authority to other people in their organization, but by delegating, that does not absolve them of being responsible for it. So I can delegate it to my, my PM to make sure that these oversight things are done, these delegation, you know, the, the delegation of duty goes to them to make sure compliance is done and the correspondence. But it will still be my job to go behind the PM and say, let me see what you've received, right? Let me see the compliance reports. Let me see the desk audits. Let me see the site visits. Let me see the documentation. And then I can sign off on it and say, yes, that was done. They are compliant. 
John Davis seemingly does not have any of those things. They don't exist, and there's no reason to believe that they occurred. So the state is really smart in setting it up this way because there really isn't any way for him to back out. Now, some of the documents that they require, uh, particularly for a job, would be an application, a posting, a description of duties. Um, They would require his hourly rate, his start date. They would require timesheets. They would require kind of a a summary of of work done, the hours put into it, and the eligibility of the client served, and the number of clients served. So they have none of that and submitted none of that. The Chapter 7 of the handbook also provides for the state to do desk audits or site visits. And for those of you not familiar with it, a desk audit basically would be the administrator or the administrator's representative reaching out to the, the nonprofit's point of contract and saying, hey, we're, do, we're, we're performing a desk audit. We would like to see this list of documentation. And whatever the nonprofit submits, the administrator will go through it. And if they're deficient in Mississippi, they issue a initial findings letter. And this initial finding letter will tell them everything they're deficient on and will give them 30 days to either submit the documentation that's missing to or to explain the documentation that's missing or to submit a corrective action plan. You have to, so in in contracts and grants, you have to give the vendor the opportunity to correct the mistake. And to do that, there's a very, there's a very specific way you do that, which is you send something out in writing that says you're deficient in these, please tell us how you're going to correct it. And if they don't correct it, then you can proceed. But if you skip that initial first step of notifying them, you can't then say at the end of the contract when you don't want to work with them anymore, well, you did this, this, and this, and that. That is not how it works. Um, Additionally, there is chapter nine in the handbook that gives them the ability to to deal with noncompliance. And some of that includes not paying them. Some of that includes, you know, uh, requesting additional documentation. Some of that will include the termination of the contract. It's, It's up to the administrator at that point. But to get to the point where you can do these things, you have to have done all of the things before, which is that initial findings letter. You've had to have corresponded with them and let them know this is what's going to happen. Now, on the nonprofit side, if you don't get any notification from the government that they're going to conduct a desk audit or they're going to conduct site visits, what I would advise generally, um, and this is, you know, obviously I'm I'm not a lawyer not telling you what to do, but... What I have, what I would advise would be to send something in writing to your point of contact to say, as of this date, we've not received a site visit or, or had a, a or had a site visit scheduled or, or have received notification of a desk audit. Can you confirm that we are still in line to have this activity this fiscal year? And typically, what you'll get is. Yes, we're running behind, but we do plan on doing it, or no, we don't. Or, you know, if your if you're administrator's a little saucy, they might not respond kindly. That really doesn't matter. What matters is that you've sent the notification to say, hey, we are a responsible vendor. We have not received this. Do you plan on doing it? And if they the response is nothing, as sometimes it will be, at that point, you're covered because you've asked the government, hey, I know you're supposed to do this. We're trying to be compliant. 
can you let us know if you're still going to do this? And if they choose silence, silence is an answer. Doing nothing is an answer. And that just moves it from your responsibility as a vendor to the government being negligent and doing their oversight, right? Um, and my experience, though, by and large, is that most agencies do not behave like this. Most agencies will say, oh, God, you know, we forgot to do this. We're running behind. They have low resources or they have a natural disaster that they're dealing with and they just don't have the staff to do it. Most of them will then say, yep, you know, we've missed that. We messed up on that. We do plan on doing it. We'll let you know when we're scheduling it. Or they'll say, we just don't have the capacity right now, but we plan on doing it in the next fiscal year. We'll maybe do two as opposed to one, right? So that can happen. There are some agencies that will try to hold on to stuff and, and, and put it together all at once and make it make it a situation where they're trying to establish a pattern of uh, a pattern of inability or a pattern of shoddy work or however they want to do it. The problem with that is, is that if there was no initial notification that this was wrong or that this is deficient and this is a, a formal deficiency notice, then they they can't establish that pattern. But you will have some and and even my firm at my level have had agencies that there was no problem until there was a problem. And then all of a sudden these problems come out of the woodwork. And my response is, did you let us know that that was an issue? And if not, then there's really nothing we can, you know, we will try to, we obviously want to make your customer happy, but I think that from a business perspective, you have to protect your company too. And that means saying, was were we formally notified that this was a deficiency or it was considered, you know, uh, it was considered deficient or not meeting the standards? And if so, did you at any point have a written determination of what an acceptable standard was for the deliverable that you submitted? If not, then the state can't just make it up, right? If not, if the state just says, oh, we just need a, a document that says this. If you submit a document that says this, then even if the state doesn't like it, they can't then say to you, well, that's not good enough. Because according to your document, at a minimum, you had what was required. So the state will then have to come back and do an adjustment to your grant agreement or a modification to your, your contract to show that we've amended the requirement, the minimum requirements for this report. They can't just make things up on the fly and say, well, you know, your performance has been less than stellar based on some made up things that they never defined at some random point during the performance of your contract. All right. Or your grant. Um, like I said, I think this is going to be a really interesting case. The state has set it up really well. Um, I think they've got their guns pointed at the more than appropriate person in John Davis as director. I think that they are really cued in on what he didn't do that he should have done. They are really cued in on his ethical and his professional requirements as the director of the agency. And they are really gunning to make that the focal point of the lawsuit, which I love and I wish we would see more of. So I'm really excited about that. So that is today's episode. And as always, I'd love to hear your comments or questions. Leave it on any of our social media pages uh, or our website. You can shoot me comments directly there. If there is a particular case that you'd like to hear me talk about or or, or any, any 
any topic really, just let me know. I'd be happy to hear it and happy to, to cover it for you. And that is it. And I thank you again for joining us.